Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Thomas Big Spider, so we're going to do something really different this time around. I know I always say that, but trust me, this one's going to be quite different than stuff we normally do. Uh, the idea came to me a while back, and I've been playing with it a bit, and somebody, a conversation I had with somebody the other day kind of brought the idea back to the forefront, plus the fact that I'm going back to school, and I've spent the last several days trying to put together you know, materials for my classes and some assessments, so I thought... Wouldn't it be fun to kind of put together a little Tarantula 101 assessment or test? And for those of you who are still in school and are actually dealing with tests and quizzes right now, I apologize. But this will be a fun one, again. And it's something I've thought a lot about. I have spent some time putting together some, for lack of a better term, lesson plans about Tarantula husbandry for people who want to play around and take you know online tests and quizzes. There's so many resources we have as teachers now, especially now that we had the pandemic and a lot of the stuff went virtual. We discovered all these new programs that you can make, you know, tests and quizzes to, for the students to assess themselves with. And I've been playing with that. And it's something I hope to launch someday. I mean, it's been a long time coming. Who knows when I'll ever get it done. But I always thought it would be a cool idea. And then I started thinking, why don't we do like a video of this? And then I was thinking, why don't we do a podcast of this? So essentially what we have today is I kind of put together a fun little test quiz, whatever you want to call it, assessment. I always jokingly call them assessments to kids. They'll be like, are we having a test? Like, no, it's an assessment. It sounds so much nicer, but it's a test. But I figured it'd be fun to put something together where, you know, one of those deals like back in the day where you'd get the magazines and they have the little tests and quizzes, something like that where you can go through and just kind of test some of the background knowledge you have on the tarantula hobby. And I, the original one I started with, I changed because I think I made it too difficult. I think for this one to kick it off, we'll just make it fun and put some basic stuff in there. You know, basic concepts and ideas so that, you know, everybody can kind of have fun and enjoy it. Plus, it'll allow us a nice little springboard to talk about some of these because each one of them is kind of a little topic into itself. So for some of you, this may be just a major refresher. It's going to be one of those deals where you get done and go, yep, I got 100. I'm awesome. And that is awesome, honestly, because this is stuff that I can tell you the majority of this I did not know when I first got into the hobby. But for anybody that's been in the hobby for a little while, these are going to seem probably rather easy. I tried to put a couple trick ones in there, but Overall, it's meant to be an easier one. Now, if folks enjoy this, which I hope they do, this is always something we could do again and continue to make them more and more difficult, which I think would be fun. I had a couple questions on here originally when I was doing the first version of it that I had to double check and look stuff up because I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not even sure I'm correct on this one. So I think, you know, ahead, if, if people do enjoy it, that would be a fun thing to do is just kind of make them a little more and more difficult. So that way, even folks that just are discovering the podcast or are just discovering the hobby can go take the easier one, go, hey, I know this stuff, maybe not do so great on the more difficult ones, but maybe come back to them later on after they've learned this stuff. And you can kind of see, because there's no way to really gauge how much we learn in, in this hobby. And I think the majority of us start out knowing nothing. We amass so much information, so much useful information that sometimes we don't even stop to think about how much we've actually learned. I mean, for me, that's the fun part about a hobby is learning all the new information. I love delving really deep into them and learning as much as I can. I mean, even right now, I just picked up a bunch of tarantula books and spider books from Amazon and shopping for books because I want to learn more about the biology and some of the, you know, more scientific side of it where I feel like I'm lacking. So hopefully folks will find this fun. If you get ones wrong, who cares? I mean, it's just for fun. And there's probably, I tried to make them 
very cut and dry questions, but I'm sure there'll be something on here that somebody comes in and goes, wait a minute, I don't agree with your answer. And in which case it'll be lead to a nice little discussion. So I think most of them are fairly cut and dry. And again, what we will do is there are three sections to this test. First one is your basic true or false. We will go through them and then I will give the answers or at least the answers that I was looking for. And then we will go right on to the next section, same thing there, and then the final one's just a little scenario, see how much, you know, people, test people's critical thinking skills a bit. So, again, hopefully this is fun, hopefully people dig it. So, without any further ado, let's start with the first section of the test, and obviously those of you at home, if you want to break out a piece of paper and number it, it looks like we go 1, 2, 33, although the last one's kind of a scenario question, so there's 33 questions, for those of you that are driving your car, sitting at work, you know, keep a little tally, you know which ones you got right and which ones you got wrong, we all do that little game where we realize nobody's really paying attention to us, so we go, oh yeah, I, I didn't get that one wrong, I meant that, it's just for fun, don't bother cheating, it's not worth it, if you want to, you know, for folks who are on Facebook with me and that post on the Facebook page when I put these things up, if you want to post what score you got, feel free. But remember, it's not really a competition. We've all, you know, the only person that's getting anything out of it is you. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of hundreds and I'm sure there'll be folks out there that get a couple more wrong that kind of lie about it. But that, that's just human nature. Anyway, so starting with true or false. Obviously, this one's pretty self-explanatory. I'm going to read a statement. You are going to decide whether it's true or false. And I think... We'll go through them all. I'll read them all first, and then we'll go back through them all before we go on to the next section. So number one, kicking it off, one that I think is a pretty easy one. Water dishes pose a hazard risk for tarantulas. True or false? Number two, tarantulas must be kept using strict ideal temperature and humidity requirements. Number three, organic topsoil is always an appropriate substrate for tarantulas. Number four, some arboreal species of tarantulas start off their lives on the ground or even in burrows. Number five, a tarantula's toe claws can become lodged in wire mesh, leaving it hanging. Number six, misting or spraying tarantulas is a useless practice. Number seven, Fancy or expensive glass or acrylic enclosures make much better homes for tarantulas than plastic bins. Number eight, all New World tarantulas have urticating hairs. Number nine, all tarantulas abhor light and should be kept in the dark. Number ten, a tarantula can be tamed down to accept handling for the rest of its life. Number 11, tarantulas often use their water dishes for trash removal. Number 12, tarantulas use their webs to catch and ensnare prey. Number 13, tarantulas can regenerate lost limbs through subsequent molts. Number 14, the more one is exposed to urticating hairs, the more resistant to them he becomes. Number 15. Tarantulas require a heat source in order to thrive. Number 16. Care sheets are the best way to find care information about your tarantula. Number 17. 
When tarantulas pair, the male will always get eaten. Number 18. A bite from an old world tarantula is only a bit painful for a while, but it quickly passes. Number 19. In the wild, burrows allow spiders to avoid extreme temperatures and weather. And number 20. A bite from a tarantula is inevitable. All right, so that is it for our true or false section. For those of you that were writing it down, hopefully I gave you enough time to put your little TF or the, you know, my favorite when my kids do the combination of the TNF so you can't tell which one it is in there. For those of you who are doing it or driving around or at work or can't really write anything down, hopefully I gave you enough time to kind of think about what you wanted to put for an answer. And again, I apologize for folks that are more visual learners that would love to have this in front of you. Perhaps I'll put up the actual Google Doc up online or something at some point so people can actually look at it as they go through. So let's break this one down and see what the answers are. And you guys can kind of keep track as you go. Number one, water dishes pose a hazard risk for tarantulas. That is false. There is a huge misconception out there that tarantulas can drown in the dishes. It is almost impossible for a healthy tarantula to drown in a water dish. I have kept hundreds over the course of the years. I have kept water dishes in things as small as even a quarter inch, and I have never had a tarantula drown. The only time you hear of tarantulas ending up in water dishes is sometimes you get a situation where one is sick, and a lot of times when they are sick, they go out and they seek out water, and sometimes while they're hovering over the water dish, they collapse, they die, and it looks like they drown. So I think that's probably where that one came from. But nope, water dishes are good. You can use them. You know, I was going to do another question about water dishes, but we'll save that for the more difficult one because that one will be a little more, I think, uh, controversial, so to speak. So number two, tarantulas must be kept using strict ideal temperature and humidity requirements. Hopefully, if you folks have been listening to me for any length of time, you know that's a big false. Can we keep them at certain temperatures and higher temperatures? Yes. Can we keep them at lower temperatures? And they do just as well. Yes, I proved that for many years when my winter temps would dip down into the 60s, yet they would continue to eat and molt. And I got some great growth rate out of uh, great growth rates out of some species that you read online have to be kept 80, 85 degrees. The fact of the matter is they are very adaptable. And although you may get faster growth rate with higher temperatures, they still do well at those lower temperatures. And we often forget that some species, I'm looking at fauna pelma, for example, do experience huge temperature drops during the wintertime where they're from naturally. So that is a species that would be subjected to 50 degree weather, even below that. I talked to somebody, they said it drops into the 30s where they are and they see those spiders out all the time during the warmer months. So you do not need to adhere to strict ideal temperature and humidity requirements. Number three, organic topsoil is always an appropriate substrate for tarantulas. That is a false. Admit it. How many people put true on that one? Here's the deal with the organic stuff. The, the When you add animal dung to any type of dirt, it's considered to be organic fertilizer. So a lot of times you will see organic topsoil or organic dirt and you will read the label on it and it'll say includes chicken droppings or cow droppings or animal waste. You don't want that in your enclosure. That's just going to invite, going to invite bacteria and stuff that you don't want in there. So unfortunately, you have to read those labels even if it does say organic. Number four, some arboreal species of tarantulas start off their lives on the ground or in burrows. I get this one a lot. That is absolutely true. If you have a Pisilotheria species, a Lampropelma species, a Omothymus species, there's a bunch of arboreal ones. Actually, 
right off the bat, the only ones I can think of that don't start on the ground right away are the carabinas and the avicularias. Those ones are generally show those arboreal tendencies right from the get-go, but a lot of the other, I won't say all of them, but a lot of the other arboreal species start off by hanging toward the ground, sometimes burying, uh, burrowing a bit. My oviolospes, for example, burrowed quite a bit into the ground and lined it all with silk, and she had a burrow. A lot of them will create burrows in the ground or at least behind their cork barks, especially if you set them up at like 45-degree angles, as you would for the arboreal species. They will spend time on the ground. I can't tell you how many times I had people email me. I just bought a piece of Lotharia species. I don't get it. I set it up like an arboreal, but she's hiding in the dirt. Is there something wrong with them? There's nothing wrong with them. That's just where they start as they put on some size and get a little more bold. They'll start hanging out more out in the open and more act more arboreal or what we expect an arboreal to act like. Number five, a tarantula's toe claws can become stuck in wire mesh. That is 100% true. I have seen it. It has happened. I, the thing that drives me nuts is I get that people take the chance. I really do. I get that people don't replace the screens on top. I know people, there are keepers out there that have kept for years, never had an issue with it, but it can happen. And to pretend like it can't happen is kind of dangerous because I have experienced it myself and I've actually experienced it. A lot of times we say that it doesn't happen with arboreal species. I have experienced it with an arboreal species, I've experienced it with the terrestrial species, so it can happen. It's something to keep in mind. I know that, you know, it's a pain in the butt trying to swap out that mesh on the top of your aquariums when you pick up these new nice, you know, exoterras or whatever, but it can save a spider's life. So I do it because, again, I'm one that has to put my hand on the burner once, but once I burn myself, I'm usually pretty good about it, and that's what's happened. You know, I've actually burned myself twice in this instance. So can happen, always something to be cautious of and to keep in mind. Number six, misting or spraying tarantulas is a useless practice. All right, we can argue about this all day long. I'm going with false. I bet you I surprised a few people there. Uh, the problem is back in the day, everything was misting. You look back in the 90s when I got my first tarantula and it was a G. porteri, the, you know, the rose hair, dry species. It said to take a spray bottle and spray them three times a day. That was the big thing. And I think what happened is over the years, we realized that there are better ways to keep our tarantulas hydrated, like soaking down the substrate and having moist substrate. However, because we started moving away from that as our sole way of keeping our tarantulas hydrated, we somehow branded it completely useless. And I don't think it is. I've used it before. I've used it with slings. I've sometimes with my tarantulas will mist down the sides of the enclosure or the fake plants or even the real plants. And I've seen them come out and drink from that, especially your arboreal species. I've seen avicularia do it. I've seen my carabina versicolor do it. I've seen my pisolotheria do it. I've seen all of them do it. So keep in mind, it's not the best way to keep your tarantulas hydrated. I think that's true but recognize that it can be a good practice and good part of keeping your tarantulas or making sure your tarantulas have that moisture they need. Number seven, fancy or expensive glass or acrylic enclosures make much better homes for tarantulas and plastic bins. Hopefully nobody here put true. That is a false. We get a lot of, you know, I've just experienced something where somebody was saying somebody was a better keeper because they put their tarantulas in much nicer enclosures. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Sometimes you just got to use what works for the tarantula and the plastic bins. If set up correctly, they don't look as pretty, but they can work just as well. Number eight, all New World tarantulas have urticating hairs. 
Most people probably got that this was a trick question. That is false. There are several species out there that do not have it. I believe Catamary don't have them. Salmopeus species don't have them. And I don't think Tapanakinius have them off the top of my head. So there are some New World species out there that do not have the urticating hairs. Recognize a little extra trivia. Most uh, A lot of people think that their venom is actually worse as a result. So they haven't evolved those urticating hairs, but they have kept the strong venom. And they're are, you know, I believe there's a paper out there, and Luis, if you're listening to this, maybe I'll shoot you a text in a minute, I'm probably going to forget, but there's, I believe, a paper out there, something out there that talks about some of these species being more closely related to old world species, so just a little cool side note there. Number nine, all tarantulas abhor light and should be kept in the dark, that is a big old false, I think a lot of us that keep our tarantulas with the night, you know, day-night cycle, and it's not necessary to keep them with a day-night cycle, let's be clear. But a lot of us keep the lights on. My lights are on right now. I usually put them on in the morning before I go to work and turn them off at night. And they, I have some that obviously won't come out. They're nocturnal. They will hide. But I have others that will stay right out in the open all day long. And, and believe it or not, I have right now, I'm looking at three different Pizolotheria metallica, which is a species that is supposedly very photosensitive, very sensitive to the light. And I have three of them. They're sitting right on the sides of their enclosure, right out in the open in the light. So no, you do not need to keep them in the dark. You do not need to keep them in closets. Somebody came on recently in one of my YouTube videos and commented that the light would bother them in that bright room that I had my tarantulas in. I had to disagree. So not something that's necessary. Number 10, a tarantula can be tamed down to accept handling for the rest of its life. I know some people are going to freak out about this one, but the key phrase in here is for the rest of its life, that is false. Unfortunately, we have seen signs that tarantulas can become accustomed to handling to a point. I mean, I don't think that's quite disputable. There are certain ones out there that seem to be more tolerant. There are some, I've seen compelling evidence of people that have, you know, held their tarantulas and they seem to become used to it. However, there are many instances of supposedly tame tarantulas molting and changing their attitudes completely after the molt. I just talked to somebody who had a G. pulchropes, which is usually a pretty laid back tarantula that they would hold. It would just sit in their hand. It was great. It molted and now it's a demon. So unfortunately, unlike dogs, you know, if you train a dog and teach a dog and to, you know, do any type of trick, they will remember that trick the rest of their lives. Tarantulas, there's always that point where they molt. Don't ask me why. I'm still kind of curious myself as to why a molt would trigger a total change in personality, but it could be just the stage of their life they're in. They become more bold. They're more like, hey, leave me alone. But that molt can be an X factor as far as, you know, a, a supposed tame T keeping its tractability. Next one. Tarantulas often use their water dishes for trash removal. That is correct. That is true. I hear people complain. One of the arguments I hear about giving tarantulas water dishes, well, they just throw garbage and dirt in it anyway. Well, in the wild, the thought process is that when it rains, there's little rivulets that form around them. So they get little you know, places where they could drop stuff and the rain will wash it away. There are puddles. There are obviously, there's lots of places in the wild that they could drop their refuse and have it just washed away. So the idea, the thought process behind it is that they have learned that if there is water and you put something you don't want in your den in it, it will be washed away. So that's why they do it. Does that mean we shouldn't give them water dishes? No, it means we should clean out their trash. That's what they're using it for. Fill it back up with water and who knows, next time it might actually take a drink out of it. 
Number 12, tarantulas use their webs to catch and ensnare prey. This is false. They lay down webbing for molt mats. They lay down webbing around their homes to create privacy in their dens. They lay down webbing to signal that prey is near. Remember, their bodies are covered in those hairs. They're one big sense organ. They can feel everything, even the slightest little changes in pressure. And when they lay out that webbing, that webbing allows them to expand that sense. So if something comes within a foot of their den or hits that webbing that they have laid around their den, that allows them to know there is food nearby and they can go on the hunt because normally they just sit back and wait. They're ambush predators, but that allows them to recognize that prey is there. But a lot of folks, you know, I have them ask me, oh, do they wrap things up in web like spiders do no they don't I, they do not put out webbing like say a true spider to ensnare their prey they use it as like an alarm system as well as other things next one tarantulas can regenerate lost limbs through subsequent molts this is number 13 in case people have lost track that is true i just had somebody ask me the other day they were freaking out because they bought a tarantula is missing a leg and would it always be missing a leg nope the good news is the next time it'll have like that little spare tire leg you know that little donut they give you for your car the first molt they have after they lose one usually looks like that it's a lot smaller discolored but in subsequent molts it will put on more size and eventually within two or three molts it will have a normal size leg there so that's not anything to worry about there amazing animals and the fact that they can regenerate like that i think is one of the coolest things ever number 14 the more one is exposed to urticating hairs the more resistant to them he becomes that is a big fat false it's the opposite i think people need to be aware of this because i see folks out there like the hairs don't bother me well they might not bother you now but after your body says no moss you may find that you're actually super sensitive to them i have spoken to several keepers over the years and i'm talking a lot of them who do not even keep new worlds anymore because they can't even be in a room with new worlds without becoming very uncomfortable burning itching just not they can't tolerate it anymore so the problem with these guys are when you don't protect yourself with them you know it may not bother you at first but you actually become less resistant to it the more you expose to them meaning at some point you could become so sensitive to them that you can't even keep them anymore and that would be horrific i hope i never get to that point i try to protect myself when possible but uh, it's always in the back of my mind Number 15, lost my spot there, sorry about that. Tarantulas require a heat source in order to thrive. That is, in most cases, a big old false. Bottom line, they do well at room temperatures. I've kept them down to 65 degrees, not for long periods of time, but for a little while during the winter, they've continued to eat and grow. We kind of went through the heat thing, but I think a lot of folks freak out at this. They're used to, you know, I think a lot of it comes from reptiles or just their own personal comfort. They recognize that, hey, it feels a little chilly when it hits 67 in the room. I'm sure my tarantulas are chilly too, but they don't feel that the same way we do. So heat sources are not required unless you're really getting low temperatures and we're talking about you know, 50s or so. I actually just talked to somebody and I, I, they didn't answer me back so I didn't get more information, but theirs dropped down to supposedly 45, 50 degrees during the winter time, and he said he's had no problem. I would not encourage people to do that, but there are species out there that would experience that type of drop in their natural environment and they do just perfectly fine with those lower temps. Number 16, care sheets are the best way to find care information about your tarantula everybody here better put false on this one they are not unfortunately the majority of them are not particularly accurate a lot of them are regurgitated or written by people that don't even keep the animals so we kind of frown upon them although there are 
people out there that do them that they've got you know Mike's basic tarantulas comes to mind he's my go-to and has been my go-to for many many years as far as when I get a new tarantula if I can't find anything online and he's got something about but you can tell by his care sheets he actually keeps them and they're very detailed so I don't even think they'd really qualify as one but those ones that just have you know oh temperatures 85 degrees humidity 85 percent humidity those are kind of bs when uh, number 17 when tarantulas pair the males will always get eaten well anybody that's listened to my podcast knows how i feel about this that is again false a a lot of tarantulas the females are actually fairly gentle with the males you'll see this a lot with amazingly enough the old world species and a lot of people think it's because the places the environments they come from are so inhospitable that the males have to survive longer and be able to impregnate more females because there aren't as many of them out there not as many of them make it to be able to mate or more of them are killed while they're traveling to be able to mate at least that's the theory behind it. again these are just theories don't anybody quote me on this and say moran saying this is scientifically proven but that is the theory behind it and it tends to be the new world species that are a little more munchy the females but no you do not it, it just because you're breeding it does not mean they're going to eat the males a lot of people think this is a foregone conclusion it is not i've saved many males and i've had males go on to pair with other females which means even more babies and that's what it's about so not only is it kind of cruel to just leave the male in there to get eaten especially considering if it's in an aquarium or in an enclosure it's not like in the wild where he can just beat feet and run and he can go anywhere they're kind of trapped with the walls of the enclosure Give your male a chance. Try to protect them when breeding. I've advocated that for that for years. And the good thing is the majority of people I speak to agree. Number 18, a bite from an old world tarantula is only a bit painful for a while, but it quickly passes. Somebody just told me this the other day. Yeah, I read that this one was going to hurt for a bit, but I'm okay with it. That is false, at least in some instances. It's not always the case. For some, you're going to have excruciating pain. I've heard it's like somebody heating up a knife to a red hot temperature and jamming it in the palm of your hand. That does not sound pleasant. But with other species, I'm thinking of Pisletheria, for example, you can look forward to cramping, full body cramping, shortness of breath, breath, heart palpitations, and some of these symptoms don't necessarily go away immediately. I've heard people that get them months later, they'll just start cramping or they'll have chest cramps or their hand will completely cramp up or the old injury spot will start cramping up or they get calf cramps or whatever. This is not a joke. And and I think that's the part that people miss. They think, oh, I'm good with pain. I can deal with pain, but they don't recognize that there are other issues that they can suffer as a result of one of these bites. So not to fear monger, that's not what this is about. And again, I don't, well, I don't want to ruin one of my questions, but Anyway, if you do get bit, you do need to, if you are keeping one of those species, you need to know that they can possess a nasty bite. But if you, you know, play your cards right, you handle them with caution and respect and care, there shouldn't be an issue. Number 19, in the wild, burrows allow spiders to avoid extreme temperatures and weather. That is true. This can't be overstated. A lot of times we look at where they come from. We see the temperatures are high, but we don't take into account that this is a species that will burrow down into the dirt to get to the moisture it needs, to get to the temperature it needs. It's funny. I was just reading a book on spiders, and they brought up Fufia species, and they were specifically talking about that they will burrow, and depending how how hot it is outside or whether or not they need moisture, that determines how deep their burrows will be. So that's always important to keep in mind, especially when setting up tarantulas in our homes, especially when examining the conditions that they live in, where they come from in their natural habitats. 
And number 20, a bite from a tarantula is inevitable. That is a huge false. Everybody keeping should have that in their head. It is not an inevitability. In fact, I would say it's very avoidable. And if you practice good rehousing techniques, if you practice, you know, if you treat your tarantulas with caution and respect, if you're not handling them all the time, and unfortunately I'm not, you know, coming down on handling, but if you do handle your tarantulas, you are in fact increasing, drastically increasing your chance of a bite. They may never bite you, and that may be something you're totally okay with, but it's something you need to be aware of. So how did everybody do on that one? Hopefully uh, the first part, everybody did well. Again, these are not, I know there's probably some people out there going, man, these are really easy. I took the hard ones out. We have harder ones coming up. I do have some fun trivia ones that we can do. But for this one, I want to just kind of cover some basic topics that it doesn't hurt to review every once in a while. So hopefully everybody did well on that. I would say that if you ended up with 15, you know, 15 to 20, correct, you're doing great. Anything below that, you're still doing fine. Hopefully just paid attention to my exam. Examples of, you know, why I think it would be false or true. All right, moving on to the next one. We got multiple choice here. Again, I didn't make these particularly difficult, but I think there are a couple in there that could stump people. So let's go on to the multiple choice with number 21. And I think with this one, we'll just go through them because it'll be, there's no way I'm going to be able to read through all of these and then come back and read them all again. It'll be too redundant. So what we'll do is we'll do these one at a time and I will answer them one at a time. Number 21. Why do most consider care sheets to be terrible sources of husbandry info? Yes, I am dumping all over care sheets today. There's a couple of these points that, yes, they're purposely in here a couple of times because I think they bear repeating. A, they often offer arbitrary ideal temperatures and humidity requirements. B, they are often written by people who don't even keep the species. C, they are often inaccurate and or outdated. D, all of the above. Well, I'm hoping everybody out there chose D because that all of those things are true about them. This is why we dislike them so much. They are, are the biggest issue I have with them are the arbitrary ideal temperatures and humidity requirements, which have people using, you know, spraying, overspraying, saturating their substrate and basically creating these terrible environments for their tarantulas, the ideal temperatures, you end up having them, you know, oh my gosh, it dropped below 77 degrees, I'm going to have to put a heater on there. It's just terrible. And then unfortunately, a lot of times they're written by people who don't keep the species or they cut and paste them off somebody else. I've had people actually cut and paste stuff that I've written and put their own, try to turn it into a care sheet and leave out some of the most important information. It's infuriating. And they are often inaccurate and or outdated. There's a lot of stuff out there, you know, we make advances in husbandry, especially when with new species that we bring into the hobby and sometimes that stuff they put up the care sheet it's wrong and it just stays up there and I point to the GBB that for quite a while people were saying they need to keep be kept moist and they needed high humidity and we were just killing off GBBs when I first got my GBBs we knew that wasn't the case anymore but guess what when I did research on them that stuff still popped up number 22 why do most folks give slings smaller enclosures a it makes it easier to keep track of the sling b it makes it easier for the sling to find food or C, all of the above. Again, probably a gimme, but that would be C, all of the above. We give them the smaller, in the, enclo- the smaller enclosures because, quite frankly, they don't need the real estate at that point, and it makes it easier for us to keep track of the sling because there's nothing worse. I've had situations where I put slings, little teeny tiny slings, in larger enclosures, and I can't even find the slings when I open it up, and that can cause obviously some anxiety and it also makes it for the it makes it easier for the sling to find food it's all about the sling getting out of that stage as quickly as possible after they put on some size by all means put them in a big enclosure i've never argued against large enclosures i've seen some really cool setups as long as you give them plenty of place to hide and they aren't too 
they don't offer enough height that if the tarantula climbs, it could fall and hurt itself. But there's nothing wrong with that. But with slings, I do think it's prudent to keep them in smaller enclosures. Number 23, which of the following should be an essential piece of equipment for a tarantula keeper? A, temperature gauge. B, tongs. C, heat mat. I'm hoping everybody out there picked B. If you pick temperature gauge, shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. I, obviously, totally joking, but it would be tongs. I, I can't tell you how many people I see reaching in to grab stuff with their hands, or I actually saw somebody the other day that was feeding crickets to one of their tarantulas out of their hand. It made me so uncomfortable. Tongs are a huge, there's obviously other things we could put down here, but a huge part of tarantula keeping. Many of us end up with like, I don't know, what, how many tongs has everybody got out there? I think I have like six or seven pairs plus some tweezers. They're incredible. Incredibly, incredibly useful for feeding, for removing water dishes, for even prodding a spider out of a catch cup. So many uses. Definitely something everybody needs. Temperature gauge, throw them out. I don't have temperature gauges in any of my enclosures. Heat mat, definitely not. Hopefully nobody put those. If you did, just do a little more research and find out why we choose not to use those. Scrolling down a bit to number 24. At what point is an accident with a tarantula most likely to happen? A. While observing the spider. B. During feeding. C. During a rehousing. Obviously, the answer would be C. During a rehousing. During feeding, you can usually drop, if you're not trying to tong feed your tarantula, which is not, I don't advocate for, there should be no reason why you should be in any danger with your tarantula. Even if you open the enclosure, most tarantulas, if you jostle the enclosure a bit, they'll either hide in their den, or if like you're a pokey, you flatten out and try to camouflage, they're not trying to bolt out of the enclosure, so there shouldn't be an issue. Where there's going to be a problem is during rehousing, and that is why I've spent so much time over the years showing how I rehouse all my tarantulas every time I do a species so that people can feel more comfortable when they go to do their rehousings. Because again, if there's anything a new tarantula keeper needs to get a handle on quickly, it's that rehousing. You've got to get some experience there. You've got to get whatever your mode of attack is for rehousing. You've got to be comfortable in that because that's going to be the spot that if something happens, that it's going to happen. Number 25, which of the following might lead to a more defensive tarantula? A, lack of hide or coverage. B, Lack of deep substrate for fossorial species. C. Shallow containers for heavy webbers. D. All of the above. Well, guess what? It is D. All of the above. Lack of a hide or coverage. You're going to have a spider that's either going to be sitting there in a stress pose, or if it's one of the more defensive species, you're going to open that thing up, and it's going to be like, ah, and it's going to throw up the... Threat posture and try to warn you off and keep you away from it because it's scared, not because it's mean. Obviously, lack of deep substrate for a fossorial species is a big one. If you don't allow them to burrow, they are going to web more and they're also going to be a bit more defensive in most cases. And then giving the heavy webbers a shallow enclosure like people did with OBTs for years creates a situation where every time you rip the top off the enclosure, you actually... It's like ripping the top off your house. Imagine I'm sitting here right now in my transfer room. Some big ogre just pulls the top off my house. I'm going to become defensive. Actually, I'm probably going to pee myself, but I'm going to fight if it tries to grab me. And that's what you get with spiders. So that's something to always keep in mind when setting them up. Number 26, which of the following tools is handy for adding moisture to a sling enclosure? A, a watering can. B, a pipette. C, a syringe. D, both B and C. Well, 
Hopefully you guys picked D, both B and C. Pipettes and syringes are are awesome for adding a little moisture to those tiny little sling enclosures. You can direct the water exactly where you want it to go. I've used pipettes for a while. I did have a syringe I was using and I lost it. And I have a lot of other people like I love syringes. So whichever works for you. Pipettes I bought, I think it was in a... I think I got a bag of 50 of them, so I tend to use them just because I have so many of them. But either of those will work great. Little tip for people keeping slings that are wondering how they can go about keeping it moist without. And the good thing is if your sling burrowed, you can use those to direct the water so that it doesn't flood the burrow. Number 27. Why does looking at the climate where a tarantula originates only give us part of the picture as far as care is concerned? A. It doesn't. It gives us all that we need to know. B, because surface temperatures and humidity don't account for their burrows. C, just because the spider experiences high temperatures doesn't mean that they are ideal temperatures. Or D, both B and C. This is a tough one because we should always, always, when doing research on a spider, look up the papers, find out where they come from, do some research into where they live and the climate in that area. However, it is not the be-all, end-all because of D, both B and C, because the surface temperatures and humidity don't account for burrows, and just because the spider experiences high temps doesn't mean that they are ideal. I think, I can't tell you how many times somebody will go, well, I looked this up and it says it's 90 degrees there, so I got to get my aquarium up to 90 degrees, and they don't look at the fact that they have a burrowing species or a fossorial species that is going to have a burrow that grows far enough into the ground that it's actually much cooler. I forget what the magic temperature is in burrows, but there is a point where you burrow down and they all level off at like around 68 or 65 degrees. I'm throwing out a, a general, it's, it's not the exact temperature, but I know that it is a much lower temperature than they would experience outside baking in the sun. So I've seen this with M. Balfouri, people talking about they need to be super hot. Other species, I've seen people with the Theraphosa species, you got to keep them super hot. It's not true. You have to account for the fact that there are going to, many of these spiders are going to have situations where they can burrow and escape that heat. We also need to always keep in mind, and another thing that people forget about, they read that they come from very dry places, but then we look and they have burrows that go into the ground where there's moisture. They can find that humidity there. So it's always important to look at what their natural habitat is, but to remember that is not the be-all, end-all. We have to take other things into account when we set up their enclosures. Number 28, which of the following can be used as a substrate for your tarantula? A, topsoil. B, cocoa fiber. C, peat. D, all of the above. Well, that would be an all of the above with a caveat. So let me just explain. Cocoa fiber is, a lot of folks start off with cocoa fiber and for those of us that have been around for a while, we tend to, a lot of us will migrate away from it, especially when you get into moisture dependent species or burrowing species, because although it will hold the burrow, they will web it up. It's just not the greatest material for it because it's so fluffy. However, it does work and people use it. And I hear a lot of people that get into the hobby that freak out because they read something about somebody using topsoil or something else. And they're like, oh my gosh, I'm using cocoa fiber. Is this wrong? No, it works. A lot of people, you know, although people migrate away from it and some people don't like it, it does work. Peat is one that does work, and I mention it because a lot of people use peat. However, the impact on the environment is up for dispute. I have to get some, I, I've been reading a lot about it, and there's a lot of information out there about how damaging it can be to the environment. There's also other information out there that say if done correctly and responsibly, they can replenish it. The jury's still out. I'm moving away from it because I, I'm not certain, but I definitely, it's something I've been reading a lot about and I will continue to read about and I encourage people to find out more about. And obviously topsoil, just basic dirt. And some people even pull, you know, over overseas, I know in the UK, my brothers and sisters over there that keep 
a lot of times they just pull dirt out of their backyard, and that can work well. Also, you just got to be concerned. You know, my big concern would be parasites are around here. They do spray sometimes, so I'd be worried about that. But those are all things that can work as tarantula substrates. Number 29, tarantula keeper A has his T-stermy in a large premium glass enclosure with a bioactive setup, including moist substrate, deep substrate, a water dish, and a hide. Tarantula Keeper B has his T-Sturmy in a spacious plastic tub that's kind of milky with ample cross ventilation, deep moist substrate, a hide, a huge water dish, and a plastic plant. Which Keeper has the better setup? Keeper A with the bioactive, B, Keeper B with the tub, C, neither. We're going to go with C, neither. It honestly depends in which... it. it I've had people set up these beautiful enclosures for tarantulas and they haven't necessarily been the most appropriate tarantula enclosures that I've seen. I've seen people set things up in the plastic tubs and they create a perfect environment for their spiders. So let's not get caught up in the snobbery. And sadly, it works both ways. There's people that get on people's cases for spending, like I just had somebody get on me, like, why would you spend $95 on an acrylic enclosure? Because it's my money. I'll do whatever the heck I want with it. Basically, it's my prerogative. I mean, I keep a lot of things in the, in the sterilites too. And then they'll go the other way where they'll talk to somebody. I've had people come on and they look at my sterilite containers and they go, you really should take better care of your tarantulas. That's nothing. That's not a good enclosure for that spider. So let's remember that it all comes down to what is in the best interest in the spider. And if the tarantula keeper... B found this huge tub that allows for really deep moist substrate and he's got the good cross ventilation, he's got all the stuff he needs, that's a good enclosure. If the guy with the bioactive has, you know, the deep substrate, the water dish, everything he needs, that's a good enclosure. Let's not fight over stupid little things like which one looks nicer. It doesn't matter about looks, it's functionality. Number 30, John just bought a tarantula two weeks ago and it hasn't eaten yet. What is the most likely cause of the issue? A, it could be in pre-mold. B, it could still be settling in. C, it could be very sick. D, both A and B. Well, there are two here that it can possibly be, and in my experience, it's usually these two. It would be A and B, which is it could still it could be in pre-molt, which I have a lot of people that buy from pet stores and places where they overfeed the spiders, so by the time they get them, the thing's already in pre-molt, and it doesn't eat. Or it could be settling in. Spiders that haven't settled in yet, especially ones that web or burrow that need that security to be able to start eating, will often not eat. Is it probably very sick? In my experience, it is usually not a sick spider. And I've been doing this for a long time now, a lot of emails and messages with people with this question. And more often than not, I get an email later on saying, oh, it just burrowed and it ate its first item. Or the other one would be, oh, it just flipped over and molted. So it was in pre-molt. So don't freak out when you see something like that. Always remember it takes time for them to settle in or it could be in pre-molt. Number 31, Mary's L. Parahybana sling was eating great when it suddenly buried itself and hasn't surfaced in over two weeks. What should Mary do? A, dig it up and check on it to see if it's okay. B, open the burrow and drop a prey item in in case it's hungry. C, absolutely nothing. Keep the substrate moist and the water dish full and let it come out on its own. D, all of the above. Now, hopefully nobody picked all of the above because I probably wouldn't 
make very much sense. But we are going to do C, absolutely nothing. Keep the substrate moist and let it come out on its own. I think we all have stories where we jumped the gun. We had a spider that was freaking us out because it disappeared and it wasn't coming up. And I did it with, I think, the one that I remember the most was with my Hapalopus species, Columbia Large, one out of my first three. I had one that I hadn't seen. I was convinced it was dead. I dug it up and it was one PO'd spider in there. So always remember that is natural, especially if they're eating beforehand. And that's the key. When I have people ask me these questions, I usually ask, was it eating up to this point? They go, oh yeah, it was eating like a pig. I was feeding it constantly. There you go. It's in pre-molt. It's putting up the do not disturb sign and it's trying to molt in peace. So don't jump the gun. Don't be, I mean, if it's been months and it's a sling, yeah, there's probably an issue, but a couple weeks, few weeks, even a month, not a big deal. And number 32, which of the prey items below is known to both burrow or to play dead? A, crickets. B, B, dubia roaches. C, B. lateralis, red runners, or red Turkish, ro- Turkish roaches. The answer to that one is B. B. dubia roaches will often play dead. I've literally video somewhere of a spider sitting on top of a B. dubia roach for several minutes. The roach wasn't moving. The spider eventually decided there was no prey there and moved on. They will also burrow and pop out later on. That's something to keep in mind. Again, I use them. I don't want people that use B. dubias to think I'm bashing B. dubias, but I have found that every single... And every single tarantula I keep eats crickets. Every tarantula I keep eats B. lateralis. They love the movement. They're constantly moving around, running around. The B. dubia are the only thing I sometimes have trouble with. So I figured that'd be a fun one. But I love my B. dubia. Don't get me wrong. I usually end up doing the gross crush the head things and let them walk around like zombies. The spiders end up snatching them up no problem and they won't burrow them. All right, so how did everybody do on that one? Hopefully, again, not that difficult. I did not try to make these really difficult. So hopefully everybody would have a good time, feel really positive, and feel like they you know, actually took a test about tarantula husbandry and, and did well on it. I think that's what this is all about. But again, I do hope that people in the comments chime in, tell me if you like this and you want to continue. We could always make it a feature that we do it every once in a while and just see where people are at and work in some tough ones in here. I got some stuff. I've been around a little while, so I might remember some things that people don't remember, especially about the name changes and such. We just do a lot of fun things with it. And I think it's a fun way to break things up. Plus, obviously we have the educational aspect of it because we're explaining all the answers. All right. So our final one here, I had a couple possibilities. I went with this one because it's probably the easiest and most normal. And I will give you a couple seconds to think about what you want to do with it or what answers you'd like to give. Here's the scenario. This is one where somebody either posts or emails. So we got somebody posts that their G. porteri has been climbing the walls of its enclosure and is refusing to eat or to come down to the surface. They are freaking out that something may be wrong with their new pet. Give the three most likely possibilities for this behavior. Now, obviously, before you go to answer this or while you're thinking about your answer, keep in mind when I get something like this, I usually offer something else, but offer up some possibilities, but I will also shoot back something saying, could you please send me pictures of the enclosure? And I would have some questions, but I will tell you the questions that I would ask would come from what I consider to be the top answers in this one. So, what would you think? G. Porteri is climbing. It's refusing to eat or come down to the surface. It's freaking out that something may be wrong with their new pet. Give the most three likely possibilities for this behavior. Number one, this is what it usually is. And I can usually, if they don't tell me, I have a form on my website. And when people contact me, they tell me how long they've had the spider for. But sometimes they don't fill it out or somebody just emails me and they'll say, hey, the spider's doing this. And I'll say, how long did you have it for? Oh, I just got it last night. So number one would be the spider was recently acquired and hasn't settled in yet. That's a big one. A lot of, that's usually the first thing I go to. When did you get the spider? I just got it. Still ask them for pictures of the enclosure, but I will inform them that there's a good chance your spider has not had time to settle in yet. 
Number two, I will give you a hint. What is the most common used substrate for people that are just getting into the hobby and what do you have to do with it or how does it come? That's going to be my hint. Anybody figure this one out? Number two, and I've had this happen more times than I can count. This is a G. porteri. It is a species that prefers dry conditions. It abhors moist substrate. And the keeper used moist cocoa fiber for the substrate. They either purchased a bag of it where it came moist and they didn't think anything of it. They heard cocoa fiber is good. They loaded that wet substrate in there. Or they bought a brick, they rehydrated it, didn't dry it out, and dropped it in there wet. Either way, you have a situation where the spider does not like the feel of it. It's too moist. It's trying to escape it. So that could be something. I've had situations where it's either brand new spiders that they've done that with, or I've had ones where people have said, hey, I rehoused my spider, but it's been in there a month. It still won't come down. And they send me a picture and it's soaking wet cocoa fiber. This happens all the time. So that would be something else. And that would be something to keep in mind that if you ever use cocoa fiber, always, if you have one of the moisture, the, the species that abhor moisture, dry that stuff out first and usually bake it. I baked it in an oven we used to have one of those uh, foil turkey pans that you get from like Walmart. We'd bake it in an oven using one of those for on low heat. Takes a little while. Leave the oven open so it can the moisture can evaporate out, but it works great. And then number three, we're going to go with cocoa fiber again. Now remember, some I know some people are probably thinking I'll fill this one in. I thought about this, and it could be a possibility, but some people were going to say. Well, they didn't give it a hide, and that could be the case, especially if it was a species other than G. porteri, so that's definitely something to consider. I've had people show me these enclosures where they thought the thing was going to burrow, and they just put dirt in there. There's no place for it to hide, so it's climbing, and it's kind of huddled up in the corner. However, with the G. porteri, they normally don't use their hides anyway, so I did not put this as, this did not occur to me as one of the possible solutions. The other possible solution I have, again, it involves cocoa fiber. It is, they use dry cocoa fiber, but they left it fluffy. Here's the deal. Spiders, if you put cocoa fiber in and you don't tamp it down really good, there are some spiders that do not like the feel of walking in it. You can see them. They actually tiptoe through it, and they will end up on the sides of the enclosures. I've seen this happen with my own spiders, and I've seen this happen many times with other folks who have emailed me or messaged me about spiders that they thought they had hooked up correctly because I'll go, hey, did you use cocoa fiber? Yes, I did. Is it moist? No. Did you pack it down? No, I'm supposed to pack it down. Yep, you have to pack it down. So that could be another cause of it. So there were the three I was thinking of. If somebody has other ones, feel free to put them in there. Um, you, one I could think of that I kind of jo thought jokingly was it's not even a G. porteria, it's an avicularia avicularia, because who knows, they might have bought it at a pet store, it was mislabeled, and they actually have an arboreal species, so that could be possible, but feel free to chime in if you had different answers for that one, but I do want to do, if, if people are into this, again, I had some ideas for some cool scenarios, because personally, I like, I love, even when I give tests at school, I love giving the scenario ones, the practical application ones where you have to take everything you know about spiders, everything you've learned, and try to apply it to a problem. I do this a lot when I get people to email me, and I thought this would be a fun way, you know, something in the future that we could do, a fun way to kind of analyze some of these things and see what people come up with. So that's it for our test. How did you guys all do? Hopefully you all did well. If not, obviously, there's hopefully I gave you some stuff there to research and think about. And I can tell you the majority of this, if not all of it, would be covered in the podcast in some shape or form. So if you're all caught up, you've probably all been exposed to this before. But again, I thought it'd be a fun thing to do, especially with everybody going back to school. Why not take a test? And again, if you did well on it, you got an eight or above, congratulations. You should be able to keep tarantulas. I don't know. I, this One of the things that came out of this is somebody said there should be a license for keeping tarantulas 
credentials and people should have to be able to answer questions on it and take a test. And I thought, yeah, wouldn't it be cool to design a test? This would not be the test I designed because I do think there would be some more difficult ones in there, but it's it's a start and it's a fun way to kind of kick, I think, do a podcast. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Let me know if it's something you want to see again. Definitely chime in if you want to see it again. If, you, if nobody responds to this, I'll know nobody wants to see it again. Maybe we won't do this ever again, but I had fun doing it. I have other questions I'd love to do, and I'd love to, you know, a couple months down the road, try it again and see what everybody gets. So that will do it for this one. As always, if you want to check out more of my stuff, you can find me on thomasbigspiders.com. You can find me on thomasbigspiders on YouTube. I just posted a video with a rehousing of a Saracopelma species Santa Catalina, one of the prettiest spiders I have in my collection, one of the coolest ones because they're not all that common. So if you're interested in that spider, maybe pop over there, check that out. I would do a husbandry guide on it, but I got this one as a juvenile or young adult. It was like three and a half inches, four inches. And I won't do full husbandry guides on animals that I haven't kept as slings. I think that's not... My theory is the slings are where you're going to lose them if you're not keeping them right because they're less forgiving to poor husbandry. So I, I, it will be a species that I pick up later on. I get some slings of like I did with the Nandu trepepii because I wanted to do a husbandry video on those, but I only had my female that I got as a young adult. So now I'm raising slings up so I can do a full husbandry video on it. I will probably do it at some point on Cerakopelma species, Santa Catalina as well. That'll do it for this one. As always, guys, stay safe and we'll catch you all next time.